Perry Willis is one of the four co-founders of DownsizedDC.org, where he co-authored the Read the Bills Act and One Subject at a Time Act. He was twice the national director of the Libertarian National Committee. In fact, he initiated Project Archimedes, which took the National Party to record levels of membership and revenue in 2000, records that still stand today 22 years later. He was a paid worker on six Libertarian Party presidential campaigns, most notably as a campaign manager for Harry Brown in 2000, where he hired a young green activist named Jim Babka to be press secretary. They've pretty much been together ever since. Indeed, Jim is one of the other co-founders of Downsize DC, and together they built the Zero Aggression Project, our show's sponsor, and together co-authored the Political Conscience Test. But there's one other accomplishment that Perry's known for, and for which, frankly, he should be even wider known. Right, Jim? Yes, Bill. Uh, you know, and we bring him in today because we want to talk about uh, Armistice Day. This is Armistice Day is upon us. And the discussion that we want to have is focused on U.S. military intervention. Right. There's a history to all that. And Perry has done a very helpful public service that's been appreciated by thousands of people. Uh, in fact, we had a, a small time that the articles were down. They were not up on the website during a web transition. And we got angry emails because essentially he's done all the reading and the history work for you. He's read lots of books to come to the conclusion. Well, we're going to let him describe it himself. Perry Willis, thank you for joining Gray Sarkey. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Perry, this uh, series of articles uh, tells the story of American or U.S. Uh, government intervention uh, you've written, I think, how many, nine, 12, how many articles do you know? Gosh, I think it's 12. Yeah, it's 12. I think it is 12. And we just add, you just added to the collection earlier this year and you start where, where the, let's, let's establish kind of the history. Let's take some time to go through it today. Well, I, first I look at all of the U S foreign wars of the 19th century. Then I look at all of which were wars of conquest. Uh, then I look at world war one, which is the source for World War II and for the Cold War. And I look at then at World War One, uh, at uh, World War II and examine what that war actually achieved and also how it might have been done differently. Uh, and then after that, there's, you know, the rise of Islam uh, that you know, led to 9-11 and so forth. There's the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's um, Vietnam, which I haven't written about yet because I don't think I have anything uh, unique to say about it yet. Pretty much everybody's agreed that that was a mistake. Um, but that's the rough outline of the articles. Okay. So the series is focused around three key questions. Those are, do you want to, do you recall those off the top of your head? Uh, I looked at all the wars and I, I asked myself about each one. Each article that I wrote asks each of these questions. Did the war defend freedom? Did it make the United States more secure? Did it make the world a better place or a worse place? And I concluded about each conflict that it flunked all three of those questions. Every single conflict, including, single conflict, including, including World War II. World War II. Okay. So we're going to get to that. And that's the really, to me, the most interesting part of all of this, because I just a couple of weeks ago, just a few weeks ago, was in a debate on radio that I was not anticipating where I, you know, <laughs> I had to go to some of the things that you and I have discussed and that I've read from you over the years 
uh, in these in these articles. Folks, these articles can be found on wartruth.org. The Zero Aggression Project makes these articles available for free and others. There's supplemental material. We'll get into that a bit later, but wartruth.org has links to all these articles that are posted on the Zero Aggression Project so you can get in all in one place and easily share with others Perry Willis's U.S. history of, intervention, of interventions. So the first four wars are the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, and the Philippines War. I'm eager to get to World War II, so can you give us kind of a thumbnail on each of those situations? Well, we're told about the War of 1812 was about naval impressment, uh, but the fact is that we did naval impressment too, uh, na uh, naval impressment by various terms, Shanghai and so Shanghaiing and other terms was done by all navies and including commercial ships, uh, even into the 20th century. So that wasn't the real reason for the War of 1812. The real reason was that we wanted to conquer Canada. Uh, then the next war uh, that we fought, the Mexican War, was admittedly by everyone, you know, everyone who knows, who studied the war admits that it had one purpose, and that was to conquer the Western portion of what is now the United States. Now, I just want to say real quickly about that war. Uh, we didn't need to invade Mexico to achieve that goal uh, because Mexico owed us a lot of money at the time that that war was commenced. And instead of invading Mexico directly, we could have occupied the Western territories uh, as a, uh, a, repos a um, uh, repossession for the unpaid debts of Mexico. And in fact, one of the good things about the United States over the years has, has been that a large part of the U.S. territory was paid, was bought was paid for. It wasn't uh, accumulated through war. But the Mexican War definitely was a war of conquest. Uh, then comes the Spanish-American War, which was ostensibly was designed to free Spain's colonies in the Western Hemisphere and in the Pacific Ocean. But in reality, the purpose of it was to create uh, an empire for the United States. Uh, that's how we ended up with Guam and Puerto Rico, and that's how we ended up with the Philippines for a long time as a colony. Uh, but to make the Philippines a, col a colony, we had to fight then an additional war, which is called the Philippines War. And it's one that, that most Americans don't know about, but they really should, because we American forces, U.S. forces, killed hundreds of thousands of Filipinos in that war who, who just wanted independence. Yeah, can and you just, for just a moment... Can you just for a moment, I want you to bore in a little deeper on this. Like, I don't, we have this, this myth that the United States is the good country in, in all these cases. And that, you know, it's other nations that do heinous acts and, and so forth. But this, it's really glaringly bad in this particular situation. Can you illuminate that a little bit? Well, uh, the, the Filipinos didn't want to be a U.S. colony. They wanted to rule themselves. And they resisted our effort to subjugate them. And we engaged in torture, rape, and mass murder to subdue we, I mean the politicians of that time, not, not America as a whole. Uh, but we engaged in rape, torture, and mass murder to subjugate the Filipinos. And some of the pictures from that conflict look like something out of the Holocaust. Trenches full of bodies people being tortured. It's just horrific. And so you can kind of understand why most Americans uh, don't know about this war, because it was a shameful episode. And so then, the, then there's kind of a turning point uh, that comes after that, 
which is when Theodore Roosevelt buddies up with the Japanese and he decides that he that the Japanese should have an empire of their own like the British and the Americans now have. And he suggests to the Japanese that they should take Korea, the country of Korea, as their first colony. Yeah, this is and, where we were starting to go. Uh, I anticipate we go next because you have an entire article. Did Teddy Roosevelt co-found the empire of Japan? And, and it, 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 you know, this the this article touches Japan's involvement in World War II, right? It also yes, touches. Yes, this is the pre. This is the stuff that sets up World War II. Uh, and 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 also it's it's uh, it touches on the situation in North Korea, which to this very day is an issue. I mean, as we're sitting here, we just learned that North Korea has shot multiple test missiles, and South Korea is anticipating that they might actually need to go to war to finally put an end uh, to the behavior over there. And so, you know, here we are. How many years? I mean, we're a century ago, yeah. more than a century ago, 120 years ago. Yeah, this all began in 1905 when Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, closed the American embassy and he said to the Japanese, why don't you go conquer this country as your first empire? And why would he do this? What was what was the social thinking of the time? He was a man who believed uh, that war was an uplifting thing. He was also a, a subscriber to the same Aryan theory that motivated Adolf Hitler. And he believed that some people uh, were uh, better equipped to rule than other people. And just like Hitler declared the Japanese to be honorary Aryans, uh, Teddy Roosevelt had very much that same view, that they were uh, uniquely qualified to rule other people in Asia, and that it would be good for Asia if Japan conquered countries and had an empire of its own. And okay, so, so I'm, just, start that I'm just kind of curious, Perry, why... Teddy Roosevelt's held up as kind of like one of the great presidents, right? He's on I'm just Mount kind Rushmore. Of, how is it that that like <laughs> until you told me this, and now it's been years, so I didn't just learn this like just now. <laughs> but how is it that this is not taught? Why don't people understand? John McCain was running in 2008 for president of the United States, saying that TR was his role model. People don't know about it because people are educated in tax-funded, politically-managed schools. And the politicians don't want the American people to understand the degree to which they have consistently misused the military to commit crimes all around the world. They don't, it's not helpful to the ruling class for, American, for the American people to know these things. And so that's why we don't know them. You, you say you say at the uh, end of the Teddy Roosevelt article to imagine a world where, and I want everybody to just pause and almost close your eyes and think about this. Imagine a world where U.S. politicians set a good example for the Japanese by not conquering an empire. Teddy Roosevelt did not encourage Japan to create its own empire. Teddy Roosevelt did encourage Japan to be peaceful. Teddy Roosevelt did not portray Korea. The Japanese did not uh, conquer Korea or invade China, which, by the way, China is going to come up here in a little bit. And there was no Pearl Harbor attack and no North Korea or Red China. And given the situation we find ourselves here in 2022, it's extraordinary that in 1905, one, one person was able to create the world that we're sitting in and the troubles we're dealing with 
right yeah now. he had later collaborators there's other stuff that needed to happen later but teddy roosevelt really is the person who started it off teddy roosevelt was instrumental in fact in starting the spanish-american war which led to the philippines war and 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 and, and you know the american empire in guam and puerto rico and, and the philippines so he so, really was a pivotal 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 figure and a bad actor in all of this so we've got perry willis here joining us here on gray sarkey uh he asks three questions in every one of these articles. Did the policy, did the war that was engaged in defend America? Did it protect or harm freedom? And did it make the world better or worse as a result? Uh, you can read all of this at War Truth. All these elect articles have been collected at wartruth.org. That's wartruth.org. Perry, uh, a big, big part of the entire story, and I, I would argue the biggest part of this entire story, is a cataclysmic mistake called what? World War One, probably yes. the worst mistake in human history. Uh, there's a lot to go over in this, and it's really important to understanding everything else, including your views uh, on World War II, the history and the research that you've done there. Um, give us a list, the best that you can. Uh, I'll see if I can fill in the gaps because I happen to be able to cheat and read your list here. <laughs> But give us a list. What, what are some of the really bad things that came out of this? Well, we got uh, the Soviet Union would not have existed without World War I, without, specifically without U.S. intervention in World War I. It was specifically U.S. intervention that led to the Soviet Union. So that's uh, the second most murderous regime in the history of the world. Uh, after Red China, yes. Which is next, right? Uh, well, I don't think... Uh, um, yeah, the, the, it's a convoluted path to show how uh, World War One leads, and U.S. intervention in World War One leads to Red China. But, it requires World War II to think that through. That's right, right. So, uh, but the easy ones to see are uh, no Soviet Union without U.S. intervention in World War One. Probably no Nazi Germany, although that one that one is more a product of the Great Depression than it is of our involvement in World War One. Um, and the other one that the other problem that was created during this period and and then greatly exacerbated later was the the, the beginnings of the rise of radical Islam, because uh, Britain and uh, Britain made deals with the Arabs. Uh, to have their participation in on the British side in World War One. That's a story that's told in the great epic movie, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. But then Great Britain betrayed the deals that it had made with the Arabs at the end of that war. Uh, and the only reason that Britain was able to do that was because our intervention in World War One gave Britain and France victory and therefore power to decide what the final settlement after the war would be. Uh, absent our involvement in World War I, uh, Britain and France either would have lost the war or it would have been a, a draw, a tie. And I think that I think the latter is actually what would have happened. But in either case, uh, they would not have had this incredible power to decide what was going to happen in the Arabic world. Uh, so a lot of the problems we have today uh, in fact, there's a book, a, a biography of uh, T.E. Uh, Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, titled The Prince of Our Disorder. Uh, a lot of our problems with the Islamic world begin during World War I. 
Uh, I want to talk for just a moment too about, you know, because it obviously it affected so many of our lives and each of us were born during the era, era of the Cold War. And, you know, Russia is back in the news and again, in a way that, you know, we wouldn't have expected with the fall of the Soviet Union. So even there, we're still dealing with some issues right up to this hour. I want to understand better what, what the role that World War One played in Russia. So if I'm understanding you correctly, the you've got a war that's largely a stalemate. The United States gets involved, tips the balance, and that's how the peace treaty you just arrived, spoke of was arrived at. But on the other side of Europe, Russia had a different set of events going on. And at the, when they started the war, they had a czar, right? Well, they actually had events going on in, in Russia that were similar to events that were going on in France. Uh, in 1917, the, the French troops started to mutiny. Uh, the same thing happened in Russia. The Russian troops mutinied. They didn't want to fight anymore. And the result of that was, it's an important thing for people to know, most people don't understand this. There were actually two Russian revolutions, not just one. The first one overturned the Tsar. And if at that point, that revolution, which was primarily run by uh, a man named Alexander Kerensky, had decided that we're going to withdraw ourselves from World War One. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna stop fighting. We want peace. Then probably there would not have been a second Russian Revolution. But because the U.S. was involved and the U.S. was offering money and support to the Kerensky government and there were new prospects potentially for victory in the conquest of uh, territories in Poland and the Baltic states, uh, Russia under Kerensky and, and, and his associates stayed in the war. Well, this is not what the troops wanted. They wanted out of the war, just like the troops in France who mutinied want, and wanted out of the war. In So, after the U.S. enters World War I, uh, very soon after that, the Germans put Vladimir Lenin on a sealed train and ship him out of Germany back to Russia, where they are hoping that he will wage a second revolution and take Russia out of the war. So if Germany's gaining a new enemy in the form of the United States, it would be nice if Germany could lose an old enemy in the form of Russia leaving the conflict. And that is in fact what happens. Lenin goes and he feeds into the uh, dislike of this war that's continuing to go on and uh, executes the Bolshevik revolution, which creates the Soviet Union. You quote uh, historian Edward Crankshaw in the piece uh, who wrote in the Atlantic, this is October, 1954. The provisional Kerensky government, if it had immediately sued for peace with Germany, could have remained in power, leading Russia into some kind of democratic system. But because it held to the war, because it knew it would depend on the future on the favors of the uh, Etant, uh, which is Britain, France, and the US, it could not begin to alleviate the misery of the people, greatly aggravated by the war. It was this misery which Lenin deliberately set himself out to exploit. Now, when I read that, and I read that closely, and I think about that hard, it becomes a, very apparent that the United States you could just take out the Entente. That's 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 all courtesy. All right. The United States getting involved in that war, and the fact that Russia felt that in order to keep its revo its current Kerensky revolution in place was going to need our help and favor, 
stayed in the war and we end up with uh, communism. The Soviet Union, yes, which leads on to Red China, North Korea, uh, North North Vietnam. Communism, absent World War One, communism never would have come to power anywhere in the world. But because of World War One and the creation of the Soviet Union, uh, the opportunity for communism to have power and to spread uh, arose. Okay, so World War One sets the stage for our Islamic troubles that have gone on to the current day. They were part of Iraq, even the drawing of the lines of Iraq, correct? Yes. Um, they 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 lead to 9-11 uh, in a way. Uh, so all of those troubles start there. We've got, uh, th- we've got Nazi Germany, which we're going to spend a lot of time on here momentarily. And then we've got the, the Soviet Union and their role and in, in, in involvement in the world, all springing from a decision. I'm kind of curious, uh, how did we get into World War One? Well, Wilson, President Wilson, when the war began, told Americans in his speech about the war that they should be neutral in action as well as in thought. But in fact, Wilson himself was never neutral in action or thought. Uh, from the very beginning, he favored the side of the larger empires. The largest empires at that time were Great Britain, Russia, and France. And those were the, the, the countries that were aligned against the smaller empires, Germany and Austria-Hungary. So Wilson favored a set of countries that had already subjugated a better part of the globe. And that's why in, in my article about this, I, I, I asked the question, did the U.S. side with the more evil side in World War One? And I think. Yeah, that's did. my next question. So just go with it. Uh, well, I, the argument is, is basically that, that that. Uh, France, Great Britain and Russia were worse than Germany and Austria, Hungary. Now, none of them were good. Uh, but all of them were basically democracies. Uh, 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 Germany uh, was a, a, a democratic monarchy. It had a prime minister and a parliament, just like Great Britain. And it had a federal system, like the United States. So when Wilson said, you know, let's fight a war for democracy, the, the thing, you know, what he's, trying, what he's trying to communicate there is somehow the Germans weren't a democracy. Well, they were, they were a democracy in the same sense that Britain was. Yes, they were a monarchy, so was Britain, but they were also a democracy. So in Russia was an autocracy. So somehow Wilson got it in his little pea brain that Britain, France, and Russia were the good guys. And he honored the British blockade of American trade with Germany, thereby giving uh, Britain and France and Russia a huge advantage over Germany. And, and in fact, it was the blockade that eventually uh, brought Germany to its knees. And Germany, in order to deal with that blockade, did exactly what American politicians would have done in, this, in that situation. Uh, they waited as long as they could, but eventually, uh, in order to avoid defeat, they started sinking shipping with, with the submarine campaign. And it was this then that Wilson used to argue that the U.S. should intervene. 
So we're going to come back to that. I just want everybody to know we're talking to Perry Willis, uh, my longtime partner at Downsides DC and the Zero Aggression Project. Zero Aggression Project sponsors this show and hosts a page that keeps a collection of these articles called wartruth.org. That's wartruth.org. All these articles are collected there along with some other interesting ones. I've managed to write even a couple of the pieces that are there. But most of that stuff is Perry's uh, history of, of U.S. Uh, military interventions. And I would encourage you to check out wartruth.org. Bill, we're talking about basically three questions with Perry, and his entire series focuses on these. Did it defend America? Did it protect or harm freedom? Did it make the world better or worse? Um, we were, Perry, just a moment, uh, moment ago talking about uh, Woodrow Wilson, but you make a very shocking claim about, uh, uh, well, his relationship to Hitler. Uh, not that they knew each other personally, obviously, uh, that to some degree, Hitler was the love child of Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. Well, Hitler comes to power for uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is the Versailles Treaty, which Wilson, uh, by involving the U.S. in the war, uh, gave Britain, France, Britain and France, uh, uh, the power to impose harsh terms on Germany in the form of the Versailles Treaty. And Hitler milked that to build a political following. Now, I don't think that that's the primary thing that Wilson did that led to Hitler because all of the German parties uh, were opposed to the Versailles Treaty. But probably Hitler made more effective rhetorical use of that than the other parties did. Even so, the main thing that Wilson did uh, that led to Hitler was he signed into law the creation of the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve in 1929-30 uh, crashed the U.S. money supply, uh, causing the Great Depression. And the Great Depression uh, spread around the world because if America catches a cold, the rest of the world catches the flu. And Germany caught the flu in a very big way uh, from our economic downturn, which was caused by the Federal Reserve. And you can see it uh, in the numbers. Uh, Nazis are an extremely tiny party prior to the start of the Great Depression. And then all of a sudden, overnight, they become huge because people are desperate and they're angry. So... And also, they're worried about, in, in the context of the Depression, that the communists will come to power, like they have in the Soviet Union. And they saw what happened in the Soviet Union, millions and millions and millions of people killed. And they think, under those circumstances, Hitler's the better option. Well, you can see that if there's no Soviet Union, the fear of the communists taking over in Germany would have been less, and therefore the desire to run to the protection, the supposed protection of Hitler would have been less. You can also see uh, that if the Versailles Treaty had never happened, there would have been less support for Hitler. And you can also see if the Federal Reserve had not been created, there would have been no cratering of the money supply under the management of the Fed and, and, and causing the Great Depression. And without the Great Depression, Hitler would have been an asterisk in history, if even that. He would have been a person of absolutely no importance. But because of our intervention in World War I and the Federal Reserve caused Great Depression, he comes to power and he starts World War II. 
Okay, so you you actually posit a thought experiment that I want to share with everyone, and I'd like you to kind of go with it for a second on your own, okay? okay? Run the story another way. Step one, remove the U.S. intervention in World War I. This would have created a draw leading to a more balanced settlement. There would have been no harsh Versailles Treaty. And step two, don't create the Federal Reserve, or if it did exist, avoid contracting the money supply in 1930 and 1933, preventing the Great Depression and the Nazi rise to power. So do that for us for a moment, Perry. Imagine you've got an alternative universe where those two things were different. Well, what happens then, obviously, is you don't have uh, 50 million people killed in World War II. You don't have the Holocaust. And you don't have uh, the Warsaw Pact, the, the Soviet conquest of Eastern Europe. Uh, a much better world to live in, I think. You don't also you don't end up having uh, probably Red China or North Korea either. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated uh, when we actually really get into World War II. We can talk about how all that came about, but uh, most of the bad things that happened after World War One would not have happened if we had not intervened in that war, and if we had not created the Federal Reserve. It was Winston Churchill who suggested that basically there was no World War II. World War II was basically just an continuation of World War One. There had been a resting by bol by all the nations involved, but then they got the arms back up and went back at it again. Yeah, he did say that. Uh, but again, if if there's no Great Depression, Hitler doesn't come to power, and there is no World War II. Um, I don't think there's a war with the Soviet Union either. Uh, All right. So the thing that I dealt with in the show that I mentioned earlier, where I got sucked into the debate a few weeks ago, uh, there is this widespread belief by many Americans that World War II was a good war. And Perry, it was a good war. I mean, we were fighting for freedom in this case against what was clearly a totalitarian dictator who was hell-bent on dominating Europe. He wanted to take over the world. He had uh, was supporting in an alliance with, with an Asian empire, which was looking to take over uh, most of uh, greater Asia, uh, including China. Uh, they were both uh, very uh, deathly regimes who tortured, who imprisoned massive numbers of people, put them in camps. Uh, treated them very badly, and in the case of the Germany, and enacted a Holocaust against Jews and other types that they had uh, put against. We had to go to war. In fact, it's it's kind of almost appalling, right? That that uh, FDR waited so long to get the United States into that war. Something needed should have been done to stop Hitler, and it should have happened a heck of a lot sooner. Like for example, Neville Chamberlain probably had the opportunity, right, to stop Hitler at Munich. Yeah, the, that's the popular view with regard to Munich. Uh, Isn't it the popular view of the whole war? Didn't I just describe almost everybody's view of World War II? Yeah, that's II? right. That's the whole war. And there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I don't know if you want to start with Munich or if you want to start with the things that... Could well, was World War II a good war? Let's, let's start there. Was it a good war? Is there such thing as a good war? Uh, I think there is such a thing as a good war. I think we have not clearly managed to ever really fight one. Uh, the best cases you can make for a good U.S. war would probably be World War II and North Korea. But if you look at World War II and you ask yourself, did our involvement lead to a, in the way we fought the war, did it lead to a net positive outcome 
or was it a net negative outcome or was it kind of neutral? And I think it's kind of a neutral outcome uh, because I, th I think that we did, I, I think what our, what our involvement in Europe accomplished was not defeating Hitler because in fact, we didn't have that much to do with defeating Hitler. That was mostly done by the, the Soviets. In, in fact, you know, the, the, Soviet, the Germans had been retreating in the face of the Red Army for nearly two years by the time troops, U.S. troops landed at Normandy. Uh, there's a great book about this. I think the, the guy's name is Norman Davies. It's called No Easy Victory. He really looks at all of this. And, 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 and historians now are you know, starting to admit that we really didn't have that much to do with defeating Hitler. But we did do something important. We saved Western Europe from being conquered by Stalin because Stalin would not have stopped in Berlin. He would have kept right on rolling to the English Channel if it hadn't been for the presence of US troops on uh, European soil. Okay, on that on that note, on that note, I'm sorry to break your thought because I know you're in the in the middle of a, you're on a roll here, but that's fine. There's this popular theory that Patton wanted to keep right on going and that he was kind of held back and he wanted to go right past Berlin and and take the war at that immediate hour to the Soviets. Well, he did. Uh, the problem with that was that his bosses had made a different kind of deal with Stalin already. Uh, and if you want to look at something that could have been done very early on to achieve a better outcome, uh, our relationship with Stalin is the place to look. A lot of people think that uh, Truman gave away the game at Yalta, the conference after World War II ended. But by then, uh, all of the bad outcomes of the Soviets conquering Eastern Europe were already baked into the cake. The place to have prevented that from happening was uh, a few days after Pearl Harbor was bombed, when we started giving uh, aid to the Soviets. Uh, on the War Truth site, I have a letter uh, that I, I pretend that I'm FDR, and I write a letter to Joseph Stalin uh, telling him how things could go potentially in our relationship going forward. And what FDR in reality did not do is he, he did not try to get any compensation from Stalin in return for the aid that he we gave him. Now, I would have done it differently because at that point, it was already well known that Stalin was a mass murderer. It was already well known to FDR that Stalin cooperated with Hitler in conquering Poland and the Baltic states. He was just as bad as Hitler and it was already known. So what is the point of fighting Hitler if you're going to have an alliance with his partner in crime, Stalin? So in my letter to Stalin, my pretend letter to Stalin, I say, okay, Joe, we can uh, help you. But we're going to have to come to terms about what the post-war settlement is going to look like. And what we want is for uh, your borders to be restored and the borders of the Baltic Republic, Baltic countries to be restored and for Poland to be restored. And the Red Army does not cross into Poland. Now, 
it's possible that Stalin would not have agreed to that, but he was in big trouble. He desperately needed, needed our aid. And we could have gotten something and we potentially we could have gotten a, a, a post-war settlement right from the get-go that would have favored freedom and security and would not have led to the Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. And we should have tried to do that. FDR did not try to do that. So that's one way that World War II got, could have gone differently and better. You know, the, the uh, letter that you write, uh, the open letter that you write to FDR uh, has another very interesting piece to it. You discuss the situation of the German generals in that letter. Uh, tell everybody a little bit about that aspect of the story. Well, the German generals were constantly scheming to get rid of Hitler. Uh, and they were constantly trying to negotiate with us uh, in Switzerland about what kind of deal will you make with us if we do get rid of Hitler. And time and time and again, they were rebuffed. Uh, the U.S. did not want to make any sort of deal of that nature. And so the result is that the war went on and on and on. Uh, if I had been FDR, I would have, from day one, uh, even before uh, getting into the war, I would have been urging publicly for the German generals to overthrow the Nazi regime. Uh, that should have been th the main point of U.S. policy with regard to Nazi Germany. And we knew about the Holocaust very early in 1942. FDR knew about it. And he should have made that the reason why the German generals needed to remove Hitler. He should have trumpeted that story in every utterance he had about, about the war in Europe. Because the, one of the problems that the Germans had, the German generals had, is Hitler was popular with the people because he delivered them lots of victories. So it wasn't until Stalingrad, when Hitler's fortunes reversed, where the German generals uh, might have been able to uh, justify to the German people removing Hitler. But if the whole world knew about the Holocaust, because FDR was trumpeting it every day, and we could have dropped leaflets over Germany to inform the German populace of what was being done to the Jews and how the world looked, looked upon that, the German generals would have had a much better excuse in the eyes of the German people to remove Hitler. But instead of doing that, FDR declared, uh, without consulting his allies, a policy of unconditional surrender, which removed any reason for the German generals to remove. At that point, why not just fight the war to the end? Because they're, they're, we're not going to get a, a better deal if we remove this guy. Uh, there's nothing in it for us. And so the war went on and on and on. And bodies were piled into the gas chamber day after day after day of the death camps. I, it, you know, and there we have a, a, a great movie on this subject called Valkyrie, right? That the chronicles per one of the, the, the most ornate general leadership setups to try to, uh, to get rid of, uh, of Hitler. But Perry, I, you know, I think, you know, you're kind of like missing the forest for the trees here because mm -hmm. going back to my comments a few moments ago, Hitler should have been stopped by Munich and Neville Chamberlain was, was, a a weakling, a wimp. He wimped out. He gave, he gave, gave, gave away the store. 
Yeah, what that assumes is that Hitler would have somehow folded up and gone away if only we had resisted him early on. The problem with that is that Hitler was disappointed that Chamberlain made a deal with him at Munich. He didn't want a deal. He wanted war then because he thought he had the advantage. He wanted to conquer Czechoslovakia. And we, and Chamberlain took his war away from him. So, I mean, it's possible that Hitler miscalculated the situation that if war had come at that point, uh, maybe he would have lost, but he certainly didn't think so. And if you look at what happened when war did actually break out with France and in Britain, first of all, you know, you had what they called the Sitzkrieg. They, the British and the French did nothing. They didn't try to invade Germany. Uh, and when shooting actually started on the Western Front, France fell. Like a house Great of Britain cards. Almost lost its army at Dunkirk. So it's, is it really the case that if Chamberlain had resisted at Munich, that somehow Hitler wouldn't have gone on to start a war with the Soviet Union? He wrote, that's, what, that's what he said he was going to do in Mein Kampf. Is he going to suddenly give up on his dream to conquer the Soviet Union? I don't think so. And people, other, some of the people say, well, when he militarized the Rhineland, what if France had marched into the Rhineland to oppose him? Well, he would have, as he admitted, he would have had to retreat with his tail between his legs. But would that have ended the Nazi regime? Not hardly. The German people would have applauded the fact that he tried to remilitarize the Rhineland. He, he was in a no-lose situation there. He was going to be popular for doing it or popular for trying to do it. Either way, it wasn't going to remove him from power. So people say a lot of really kind of silly things about Munich. And unfortunately, the specter of Munich clouds a lot of what happens in American foreign policy. Boy, does it on. ever. Boy, does it ever. I go in and, you know, every war that we've confronted, and one of the other things that we put up on wartruth.org was our efforts at uh, truthaboutwar.org, <laughs> where we told the story before the U.S. attack on Iraq in 2003. We told the story. We said, hey, look, there's no weapons of mass destruction, for one thing. We made a lot of bold claims and predictions, all of which have come true, all of them. It's extraordinary. But we did this at a time when we were universally opposed. There was no media standing up to any of this. And, and, uh, but there was this belief that we, that every time we end up with a military, uh, conflict, anytime we have somebody that's not behaving correctly, everybody goes back to, we, you know, it's just like Hitler. And in fact, Saddam Hussein was directly compared to Hitler. And it was like, we have to stop him before. And as George Bush put it in October of 2002, there's a mushroom cloud over American cities and boom, we're at war and we've caused a whole bunch of trouble there. I mean, it's again and again, this pattern keeps repeating itself. And now with Putin. We're hearing a lot of the exact same rhetoric. Yeah, the whole domino theory thing that was involved in the Vietnam War actually is an extension of the Munich myth. Because if we didn't resist communism in uh, Vietnam, that would be appeasement. And we can't do that because, you know, Munich taught us that that's bad. Well, we didn't appease in Vietnam in Things turned turn, things turned out badly.
real bad. So I want to make I want to uh, make sure that the audience is clear. You have not said that nothing should be done about Hitler. Uh, in fact, you you have suggested, and you do this in your articles, that uh, that U.S. politicians played a direct role, Woodrow Wilson in particular, in making him who he was, and that two, uh, there was a plan that would have could have worked for the German generals to depose him. They were appalled by his behaviors, both domestically and foreign policy wise. They were aware of the horrors of war, and they knew what his policy was. Uh, with the final, yeah, not all of them. There were there were obviously Nazi supportive generals, quite a few of them. But there was there was a lot of opposition among the German generals. So this government could have been destabilized. This government could have been overthrown. Yes, and there's also something else we could have done. Let's say that we're not in the war, uh, but the Soviet Union still went at Stalingrad, and they're still pushing Hitler back. At some point. Hitler's going to denude to take away the forces in, on the on the on the the so-called Western Wall or the or the you know all the all the fortifications and forces and stuff in Normandy and in fact in the real world uh, history that happened all of the cannons the artillery was removed from the Normandy defenses and sent to the Eastern Front. Now, absent uh, U.S. involvement in that war, I think all those forces would have been moved to the Eastern Front at an earlier date. Then the British and us too, if we wanted to, to provide troops for this purpose, we could have walked across the English Channel and liberated France because Hitler would have been busy in the East and there would have been no troops there or fewer troops, just a garrison force. So it, it's just not the case that the way we fought that war was obviously the only or the best way to fight it. Um, I want to, we've spent all of our time here on the German side of it, the European aspect, uh, dealing with the, the Soviets and, and the Nazis. Um, but there was another theater for this war over in the Pacific. Um, and I'd like to talk about, uh, real quickly, I'd like to get your thoughts on Japan I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, China, and I'd like to get your thoughts on North Korea in the and how this all starts to unfold. So one of the mistakes that the American people constantly make whenever politicians are trying to sell them on war is they constantly think that one of the sides is a good guy. There's good guys and bad guys. But in reality, in almost every single war that that we have intervened in, both sides were bad. And the same thing is true in the Japanese war with China that we were effectively intervening in when we blockaded Japan, which is what led to the attack on Pearl Harbor. We weren't really defending the Chinese people when we did that. We were defending the regime of Chiang Kai-shek and if you look at the number of civilians killed, murdered by the Japanese versus the number of civilians murdered by Chiang Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek was the worst, the worst of the two bad guys. You report, uh, this is actually the work of uh, uh, R.J. Rummel, a famous professor, late professor, uh, who, is, who coined a phrase, the term democide, which means death by the state. 
And he reached uh, numbers that Chiang Kai-shek murdered 10 million people and Japan murdered 5 million. Yeah. Yeah. So your point isn't that you're saying we should have sided with Japan or Chiang Kai-shek. You're saying both sides are bad. Yeah, I think whenever you have two bad people fighting with each other, you should not take sides. I think there were two in World War One in Europe. That both sides were bad. We should not have taken sides with either of them. Uh, in the Pacific... Well, wait a minute. Don't they become good once we join them? <laughs> I would argue that they become worse. Okay. <sighs> I'm sorry. You were saying. You're talking about uh, China, picking sides. Yeah, there's no bad... There's no good side in uh, the war between Japan and, and Chiang Kai-shek. And we talked a little bit about uh, North Korea, and we need to talk about oh, Mao. We have to yeah, make sure we so, get those two guys in on the scene. So one of the mistakes that FDR and Truman, but more FDR, and I really place a lot of blame on General Marshall, who should have had more strategic sense than this, but it, we had our, our leaders had such a simple-minded approach to this war, both in the Europe and in, and in and the Pacific. You got to ask yourself, what is the end result that we want to achieve? And you got to try to make that work to make that happen. We didn't do that in the Pacific War, so at the end of it, we invite Stalin to garrison the north part of Korea. Instead of garrisoning it ourselves, so that we could keep the country free after the war, we invite Stalin in to do the, the job in the north. What's the motivation it, for that? Is it, did we not have the resources at that moment? Was a political will missing? I, I there's a lot part some of the, we didn't have great resources uh, but some of what we did have could have been reallocated and I would argue that dealing with a country like North Korea that's so close to the Soviet Union uh, it, that should have been a priority to make sure that doesn't go communist a, a big part of the problem though is that FDR was just a nimcompoop he thought that he could he could cajole and, and reason uh, Stalin into anything, and he didn't do that. And also, he died, and he should have known he was going to die or could die. He was in extremely bad health toward the end of the war. Uh, and I don't know what General Marshall was doing. I don't know why they didn't think through the end of the war better. But inviting Stalin into, into North Korea is just brain dead, any way you look at it. And we didn't have a plan for uh, China either. So we went from bad under Chiang Kai-shek to worse under Mao. So you look at the end of World War II that started with the invasion of Poland and the invasion of Manchuria in, in the Pacific. And at the end of the, the war in Europe, half of the continent is under Soviet control. And in Asia, when all the dust settles, you have communist North Korea and red China. That's what we fought to achieve, really? So the success of World War II is that we made a very large, significant chunk of the planet communist. 
We helped it happen, yes, yes. The other achievement was that we did save Western Europe from Stalin, and that is a worthy achievement. But it's not a super great outcome. There, there were things could have been done differently. We could we could have a world in which there was no communist Eastern Europe, where there was no North Korea. We simply chose not to to prioritize doing that. Two more things about Japan before we go. Uh, Pearl Harbor. Does it come out of the blue? No, no. Uh, did and did FDR want it? FDR wanted some sort of attack somewhere. And FDR and the Defense Department, they, they both knew, they all knew that there was going to be a Japanese attack. They just didn't know where or when. And why did they know there was going to be a Japanese attack? Uh, well, for one thing, they'd cracked the Japanese code. And they knew what was being discussed in Japan. But was there already provocation before that on, our, yeah, on the it, part it, of our it, government? It was, there was constant provocation. Not only the trade embargoes, but Roosevelt was constantly sending U.S. ships into Japanese waters, hoping there would be a precipitating event like a Lusitania type of uh, event or, well, you know, Gulf of Tonkin, which to invoke what happened in Vietnam. So he was constantly trying to provoke a response. Uh, they simply thought that the, the first blow was more likely to come at the Philippines. So they were, I think, legitimately a little bit surprised that it happened at Pearl. But, but they knew it was coming. So then Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, atomic bombs get dropped and the war. Was this necessary? And, and, what, and what consequences are we living with today because of that? Well, I don't think it was necessary because we had already destroyed most Japanese cities with firebombing, conventional bombing. So, you know, there's this, this idea, this myth, the fact that we destroyed two cities overnight with two bombs was, you know, finally brought Japan to its knees. We'd been destroying cities in Japan overnight with multiple bombs, but we've been doing it for, for months and months. So there was nothing, Nagasaki and Hiroshima being destroyed by U.S. bombs was nothing unique. It had been going on for some time. Uh, the, so that's one thing. And, and another thing is those bomb detonations were not really aimed at the Japanese. They were aimed at the Soviets. They wanted Stalin to see that we had these weapons, that they really worked and what they could do. So that was the real reason they were dropped. And people will say, well, you know, if the war if with Japan had gone on and we'd had to invade, uh, you know, there would have been a lot more casualties. And, you know, thank goodness the atomic bomb brought them to heel. Well, they would have been brought to heel anyway without the atomic bombs. There was lots of effort inside the Japanese government to overthrow the military rulers and to uh, bring about a settlement. It just needed a little bit more time. But even the idea that you actually have to invade Japan is silly. Why? You've bombed the entire country flat. You can just put a ring of ships around it and wait, wait them out. You didn't have to invade the, the mainland. 
Perry, I'm sorry. Perry, I I just I want to make sure that we get your most radical proposal included in this discussion. So these articles are published at the Zero Aggression Project's uh, website, and then we people can access them. They're all collected in one place conveniently at wartruth.org. So you can go to wartruth.org and get all these, but they go to the, the Zero Aggression Project website where we have the zero aggression principle. This is that we shouldn't uh, initiate violence or use excessive force to get our way. And we shouldn't delegate that power to others. And that includes politicians. And so we are essentially arguing for a post-statist voluntarist society, which means every interaction is, is chosen by an individual just the same way that they choose to buy television sets and automobiles and security services for their home, that they should be able to make those decisions. But that doesn't seem practical when we get to the defense, right? I mean, we need a large standing military, uh, a big stick, as, as Teddy Roosevelt called it, or Ronald Reagan suggested that we needed to have, the, you know, we needed to make it very clear uh, to them that if they attacked us, we would attack them worse. Uh, right? Isn't it? Is 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 this a pr- an exception to the zero aggression principle? Well, I, I don't think so. Um, first of all, I would hope that a review of all U.S. wars and the results that they achieved or didn't achieve would persuade people that probably U.S. politicians almost pr- probably U.S. politicians always misuse the military to make things worse, not better. So it isn't clear at all that we are actually defending ourselves with this big, standing, expensive military. It seems more likely that, in fact, we are endangering endangering ourselves and creating unnecessary enemies for ourselves by giving politicians this toy they, they can use to go and make mischief in the world. And, and and they do use that toy for pretty, you know, for personal gain or benefit uh, to help their friends achieve certain objectives. We just, we just witnessed here uh, a year ago, you know, we were all so young back then when Joe Biden pulled uh, the United States finally out of, after, you know, two decades out of Afghanistan and the beltway, which has gotten very, very wealthy off a military industrial complex uh, started endangering his presidency. The, the, he went from getting zero media criticism to getting a ton of it all of a sudden because, God forbid, that we would end a war that clearly wasn't working. Yeah, uh, Eisenhower was right when he warned us against the military-industrial complex. Uh, they That complex rules us much more than we, through our democratic system, rule them. So what can be done about this? Well, well I you, you that- actually, you float this remarkable idea. I, I, it is very controversial and it's hard for most people's minds to get around. But I want to make sure we unpack it before we go. That military funding, that the defense of the country should be funded through voluntary means instead of taxation. And I think that blows people's minds because they think, well, there'll never be enough money to do it. We won't be able to maintain the standing force that we need to resist. So you know, let's unpack this for a little bit because you in, and we're not going to get in all the details right here right now, but in the series that people could find at wartruth.org, there are two articles that address this subject, one about World War I and one about World War II. So let's let's talk about it now because we're not living in those times. We're living in 2022. What is what does a voluntarist 
uh, um, military policy look like? Funding for the military would be voluntarily provided by the citizens. And people automatically assume that there wouldn't be enough uh, to provide an adequate defense. Uh, we could get into, we'd have a whole show uh, on the subject of how much defense do we actually need. But I think that the amount of defense that we need should be decided by what the American people are willing to pay for and not by what the politicians want to impose on us. Also, I would point to the example of World War II, where in fact, most of that war was voluntarily funded because it was mostly done with American citizens buying bonds that then those same citizens would have to pay back through their taxes. Now, ask yourself, if they thought that the money was being misused in that situation, they could have stopped buying the bonds. They could have withdrawn their support until politicians corrected their behavior. But the way it stands now with guaranteed tax funding, there's no incentive for the politicians to change their behavior. I want to- uh, and, and by the way, it's worse than that because you know you take something like the domino theory, and Ken Burns just did a series a few years ago about Vietnam that's incredibly moving and I'd highly recommend as a supplement to everything that you've heard today. Lyndon Johnson knew that the domino theory was bullshit. And he still pressed ahead anyway on the off chance. Like politicians have a really bad job of weighing out risk and the types of risks they don't want to suffer are exactly, almost exactly the opposite of how we live our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, he, there, there was a great debate uh, in American politics about who lost China. And Johnson didn't want to be the guy that lost Vietnam. And so he was willing to sacrifice lots of American lives and lots of Vietnamese lives so that he would not end up being the guy that lost Vietnam. He also uh, had a a incestuous and I would say criminal relationship with a company called Brown and Root, uh, which later became Halliburton, which was a major beneficiary of the war in Vietnam. And I would add this big separate subject that Johnson made some deals with the military industrial establishment uh, that ended up enabling him to become president in the first place. And that gets us into the Kennedy assassination mm. and too big a subject for today. But, uh, but, but, but at the end of the day, if, if, cause I, th there never seems to be a lack of support or interest in getting into these wars in the first place. When the war, when war is necessary, when defense is necessary, it doesn't seem that people hesitate, uh, to provide whatever's necessary. And, and I would imagine that because also lots of people are very proud of the military and, and the, and, and the, the, the good virtues that they believe it represents, uh, the honor and the duty and country that comes along with that, uh, the training up of young men and women and the refinement of their personal character and discipline, that there would also be a number of corporate sponsors that would want to uh, participate in trying to uh, make sure that the right equipment was available uh, and on standby or, or could very quickly be repurposed and built uh, if it was necessary. 
Yeah, the way I envision it is uh, uh, I would keep the withholding, tax withholding system that we have currently for the income tax. Only I would have the amount that is withheld determined by the citizen, each individual citizen. And also they could allocate on their tax withholding form or their, their contribution withholding form how much they wanted to go to various departments of the government, including the Defense Department. And if so, you know, in the case of Vietnam, if this this situation had this way of doing things had been in place, all the people that opposed that war could have withdrawn their funding for it. And that would have changed what the politicians were able to do and how they had and they were how they handled that situation. And on WarTruth.org, I have an article which asked the big question: what if World War II had been voluntarily funded? And I describe the effect that that would have had on FDR and the kinds of different decisions he would have had to have made and what the possible outcome of some of those different decisions would have been. So again, the amount of funding for defense that we need should be defined by what people, the American people are willing to pay and not what the politicians and their cronies in the military industrial complex want to impose on us. That's a novel concept. That almost sounds like how a market works, Perry. <laughs> uh, so what a radical idea. Uh, so this show is called Grace Arkey. And I asked you to please think about Grace Points. You've actually listened to uh, virtually every episode, correct? Yeah, yes. Uh, so you have a sense of what we do here. We usually finish up with some kind of great points, grace points. We don't always do it, but we, we try to, what are the grace points today? What, what are the, 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 what are the unique things that we should say to people who want to live a life of grace? Well, grace archy means being ruled by grace and non-aggression, zero aggression is more graceful than aggression. Uh, trying to de-escalate disputes, practicing diplomacy are both more graceful. They lead to more peace, uh, more trade, more prosperity, more daily grace in people's lives because their family members are not suffering and dying in pointless wars. So, uh, Perry, uh I want to get some points across, some final points that you stress. Uh, first of all, what about history? What, what should people take away about history? What's the grace point on history? Well, you cannot learn from history unless you first understand what the history is. And second, you're honest about it. And we are not at all, we as, we as the American people are not at all honest about our own military history. Part of it is because our tax-funded schools have not taught the real history to us, but part of it is because we don't wanna know. We wanna play pretend. And that's dishonest, that strikes me as ungraceful. Uh, and you can't okay. learn from history if you're being dishonest about it. We're up upon our miss to stay right now. We have a specific reason we call it our miss to stay, you and I do. Uh, can you speak to that for just a moment? So Armistice Day, the original holiday, was to memorialize the moment that World War I ended at the 11th hour of the 11th 
day of the 11th month. And the effect of that holiday, Armistice Day, was to make people recall that a large part of the globe had fought a massive war, killing millions of people over nothing. Nothing. There was nothing at stake in World War I. And Armistice Day reminded people of that. And it made people, including Americans, wary of war, which is why we passed the Neutrality Act. It's why the uh, so-called isolationism, which was mislabeled, was so prominent in the, in the 30s. Because of Armistice Day, we remembered what a horrible, horrible mistake World War I was. And so, naturally, since Armistice Day was really an anti-war holiday, eventually the militarists had to take it over and change it to something else, Veterans Day. Um, Where we say okay. they died for our freedom when they really that didn't. That was my, my next question. Did they die for our freedom? They didn't die for our freedom. They may have, they wanted to, but that's not how the politicians use them. They didn't def, uh, die to make us more secure. They wanted to, but that's not what they how the politicians used them, and that's not what was achieved. Uh, in most cases, they made us less secure. Uh, you'll hear people say, if not for the people who fought in World War II, we'd all be speaking J Japanese and German. That's silly. There was no way that Japan and Germany were ever going to conquer the United States. So on, on these ho this holiday, we, we tell lots of lies to ourselves. And what we need to do instead is find out a, find a way to honor the sacrifice of those who died without creating propaganda for a system that will make sure more people die in the future. Thank you, Perry Willis. I, you know, I used to close, uh, Bill, my radio show when I had it, my syndicated radio show. I used to close it by saying, support the troops by bringing them home. Bye-bye. Every time. That was my sign out. Because I think if you want to figure out how to really truly honor these brave people, uh, the ones who have been maimed, the ones who have been suicided by the trauma, the ones that have died on the field of battle, the way the, the ones that are still living with their nightmares. Uh, I think that you would want to try to be honest about what it was that was done. And I would think you wouldn't want to waste the lives lost and all of the damages I just articulated and have a situation where we do it again, almost casually, carelessly, with maybe even some verve and excitement that we would want to say, wait a minute, every single time this happened, we'd be like, yo, do you remember what happened last time? And we would say, no, we don't want to do this. And then we would want to start putting the mechanisms in place. Now, it, I recognize that, you know, probably by the time we got to the discussion of Perry's uh, voluntary statement, that war should, uh, that the military should be privately funded, people kind of start to, you know, okay, well, this is completely, you know, unrealistic and we can't do it. Maybe it's too idealistic in some other people's opinions. But the failure overall, if you take this information, which is just history, and you ignore all of it, and you don't do anything, like if you don't like Perry's proposals, what are yours? And and the truth of the matter is that we hardly ever get these proposals, Bill. We hardly ever get them. I've been so privileged, you guys, to volunteer with the veterans community here in San Diego for the last 13 years or so and see the results of at least since the Vietnam War, I can't say that I've worked personally with any Korea, not Korea vets or World War II vets. I know they're there. We have those people. 
But the sense of honor that comes from serving our country is very strong. Even with folks like the uh, Vietnam Veterans for Peace, that sense of honor is still very strong. We did these things. We can't ignore that. And we now choose X, you know, if it's different, or we now choose to continue to support our troops. Both are honorable. But coming from a big military family myself, I mean, we've got ancestors who fought in the Revolutionary War here. It's, it's going to be hard for people to hear this because we have to use a, a, we have to use a very fine razor to separate the human cost and our respect and reverence for the people who have paid that cost from the political opportunity that existed, I think, for all of these conflicts. And that's hard if you don't know the history. And Perry, thank you, because knowing the history, it makes more sense. This is something that you can learn, and all of a sudden it can change your mind. And however that changes your mind, whether that takes you to a place where you want to voluntarily fund military or takes you right. to a place where you you know, advocate for a better political world, whatever that place is, it, it helps us move in that direction. And, and if nothing, if nothing else on Veterans Day, um, can we all agree that there's something better that we haven't done yet and maybe move toward that? Exactly. Amen. And and I just want to put out one final call to visit wartruth.org. Uh, we link to the truthaboutwar.org site there, which was frozen in time where Perry and I and a, and a team of others, uh, Perry was the number one contributor to that page, uh, where we built up a, a case to, that uh, the Bush administration at the time was not telling the truth about Saddam Hussein and Iraq and their nuclear program and the threat that they represented. And we've been proven right on, ev on everything that's there. There's only one claim that I would today say, I wish I could have packaged it differently. And that was because the, the sources that we needed for it at the time weren't available yet. And I would rewrite only one part of that entire site. We made a wide variety of predictions, um, all of which have happened. Um, and second, Perry's articles, which and we didn't get to the last one, which involved the Cuban Missile Crisis. They're all there. You can read them for yourselves. And Perry has done something else, Bill, that I think is really significant. He gave all his source work. Uh, he shares and links to a lot of books that he has taken the time to read. This so if you if you read this series and you just did this recently, correct? Right. Yeah. Heavy lifting, but I did it. OK, but a lot less lifting than reading all the books he read. Right. Definitely. Yes. So he digested and gave the best part of all of that to us. And you've gotten a sample of it here today. And you're probably, you know, there's so much to take in that you want to start to take notes. You don't need to. You go to wartruth.org and read it. We've also got articles about Armistice Day, which we just discussed. Uh, we talk about the definition of isolation, isolationism. We talk about uh, foreign policy. We actually talk about a way to uh, do regime change, uh, a voluntarist method for doing regime change uh, in a foreign country. Let's say you don't like the government around. There's a way to you know, depose that government that does not involve initiating force. Uh, and we talk about uh, how politicians misuse uh, the lives of troops in an article I wrote uh, called The Brook Park Marines, The Truth About War and a message of life. An article, by the way, that was so good, Bill, it got plagiarized and uh, circulated around the country under somebody else's name. So. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So I want to thank uh, everyone for being here today and encourage them to, uh, uh, Perry, thank you. Uh, you this, is, this is the record longest show we've done so far because the material from start to finish, we, we scratched the surface and it was still quite dense and thick. So I thank you for, for, for being here with us. Thank you for having me, my pleasure. And uh, folks, our missed this day. Let's make it worth something.
Let's remember the troops for what they did. In fact, let's support the troops not only by bringing them home, but by remembering what politicians do to them when we're not paying attention.